Ten-year-old Chiara Rufus had picked up the milk and bread that her mother had sent her to the store to purchase that day. As she left the store, a stranger who had spoken to her there in the store was waiting outside in his car. He leaned out the window and asked, want a ride? And she said, no, and she hurried toward home. But then the stranger pulled up beside her in the car and yelled to her, get in. And confused, the 10-year-old girl got in the car. At just that moment, Monique Williams, 34 years of age, was driving home on the street, and she saw the young girl get into the car, and she sensed that something was not right. A mother of three daughters herself, and having grown up in that neighborhood and knowing some of the kinds of things that had happened in the past, she pulled up near them, and she asked the man through her window if he knew the girl. And he said, yes. So she asked Kiara, do you know him? And Kiara said, no. And she said, you get out of that car this instant. And Kiara jumped out of the car and started to run. Monique Williams pulled her car around in front of the other car and blocked it, She started yelling at the man in the car, You're wrong. You can't take that little girl. This is bad. The police arrived shortly after that, arrested the man, found out that he had a lot of sexually explicit material on his computer and that he had been uh, a suspect in a couple of other cases where he had people had accused him of trying to lure young girls to his home. Police Chief Gary Miguel said of Williams, she saw something wrong, she refused to look away. Ever since her own childhood, Williams said she had made it her business to watch out for other people. Perhaps that's why Williams has two plaques in her living room. One reads, Civilian Commendation, that was from the city. The other reads, To my guardian angel, Monique Williams, I love you, Kiara Rufus. (laughs) You know, we rightly applaud women like Monique Williams. She did the right thing. She had the courage to take action when she saw something that she thought was wrong and to rescue a young 10-year-old girl, she made it her business to look out for other people. But as Christians, that is our business in this world, to look out for other people and to warn others and to rescue others and to point others to Christ. That's why we're here. We are here to rescue people from, as horrific as that situation sounds, from something far more horrific than anything that can happen on this earth. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his very first sermon. 
And he provides a good pattern for all of us as we witness for Jesus today. Because God calls us to witness, to warn, to look out for others that we come in contact with and to tell them about Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 2, we have a good pattern as we begin our study of Peter's first sermon. Peter shows us, first of all, that we must see the world through the grid of God's word. Verses 14 through 16 of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven... Now, I set the stage last Sunday. They are in Solomon's porch, which is the the uh, section of the temple that overlooked the court of the Gentiles and was on the wall and overlooked the streets below. They're gathered there in Solomon's porch in the temple area, and there are thousands and thousands of people filling the courts of the Gentile, the court of the Gentiles, because this is this is the feast of weeks the Feast of Harvest, when the people gathered there in the temple from all over. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, the the Greek text implies that he was officially the representative of the other eleven disciples, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. We must start where Peter started. We must see the world through the grid of God's word. God had gotten their attention through some incredible events that were taking place right now. And the crowds had gathered, and Peter boldly preaches. And the book of Acts is all about the mission of the church. Our mission is to rescue people who are headed for God's judgment by presenting them with the way out, the opportunity for salvation. And it is really as simple as that. That's our mission. Peter's sermon is the first of many sermons that we will study in the book of Acts that are, that are sometimes called missionary sermons because they follow a familiar pattern in the book of Acts. In fact, the technical term for that is kerugma, which is taken from the Greek word that means to proclaim. This pattern, this pattern of the sermons that we will see over and over again in the book of Acts is called the kerugma of the early church. It is the missionary sermons of the early church. They were proclaiming this missionary message to the people. And there are six basic elements to these missionary sermons in Acts. They they all follow the same basic pattern. Number one, Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Number two, salvation comes only through the cross work of Jesus Christ. Number three, the resurrection exalted Jesus. Number four, the Holy Spirit is the sign of God's power at work in this world. Number five, Jesus is coming back to judge the world. And number six, God calls all men to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that is a good pattern for all of us to remember as we witness to other people. Unfortunately, I think far too much of our witness today is our personal testimonies. And far too little is the missionary message of the book of Acts. 
It is, don't, don't get me wrong. It's certainly okay to give our personal testimonies. Um, that's telling people what God has done for us. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. But my testimony won't save anyone. Your testimony won't save anyone. It's God's message that saves people from his judgment upon this world. In fact, the truth is that people today are perfectly happy to listen to our testimonies. Why? Because we live in a culture that is, well, that's okay for you. You know, that's your story. I'm glad to honor your story, respect your story, feel good about your story. That's really nice what you've experienced. But it's not for me, you see. I'm different. And my story is different. And so they're perfectly happy to go through life with that kind of a, of a dynamic. That's nice for you, but it's not for me is an, a common response. What people desperately need to hear today is the missionary message of the book of Acts. That's what people need to hear. Not our own testimonies, as nice as those are. Notice that Peter begins his sermon, and we're only looking at the first part of this sermon this morning, but notice that he begins his sermon with the first element of the missionary message, and that is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. The explosion of bold faith that takes place in the book of Acts, and remember, these people, these people are not highly educated people, they're not highly influential people, in fact, just... Uh, 50 days earlier, they were cowering in fear, unable to do anything, running away from the authorities. And now they're boldly preaching and proclaiming right in the middle of the temple. This explosion of bold faith comes because the Spirit of God is at work in their lives, and it is founded on the Word of God that they understood and knew and now proclaimed. The Christian message, we must understand, is grounded in the scriptures. And specifically, it is grounded in the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. And if we do not understand the Jewish scriptures, we will not understand the foundation of the Christian message. Peter and the others understood the Jewish scriptures. They had been taught those. They hadn't really totally understood it until Jesus made it clear to them. And remember, he taught them during those 40 days. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that teaching process from the Old Testament scriptures about him? So now they understood that the, the message of Christianity is grounded in those Jewish scriptures and that they can use those to proclaim that message to people. So Peter tells the people in the temple on that day that all of this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. God has been planning all of this all along. This is not a surprise. Specifically, Peter quotes from the prophet Joel. And we will look more carefully at the quotes in just a minute to ground it in God's word. But for now, understand that Peter sees this world and all that is happening through the grid of God's word. 
We need the Word of God as the foundation. We need to see this world through the Word of God. All that is happening. This is not an accident, Peter says. This is not a surprise. And it is not my personal opinion, Peter would say. It's not my perspective. It's not my interpretation. It's not a message that we concocted as disciples. We didn't create this message. This is God's message. Founded in God's word that we proclaim to people today. And you know what? We've got to get back to that in our world today. We've got to stop apologizing for the fact that this word right here is the foundation. It's not our message. It's not our opinions. It's not our interpretations. It's not our thoughts. This is God's message to this world. Our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors. Why are we so wishy-washy about that, you know? We've got to get back to proclaiming God's word, the kerygma of the Christian life. Our message is not to be filled with our opinions. It's not about our experiences, as good as those might be. The message is God's message from God's word, and people need God's word, not our words. So if we're going to proclaim this message today, we must believe in God's word ourselves and not just pay lip service to it. Now, I'm sure that if I took a survey this morning, every one of you would say you believe in God's word, right? But I think one of the big problems we face in American Christianity is that we don't really act like we believe in God's word. We don't live like it. We tend to, even in Christianity, even in our evangelical churches, we tend to sort of pick and choose what we like and dislike in the Bible. And so our witness tends to come across to people as personal opinions and interpretations and viewpoints, and okay, that's okay for you. They're easily dismissed. A while ago, my daughter loaded a program on my iPad, which you're probably all familiar with now. It's called Pandora Radio. You're familiar with Pandora Radio, right? When you listen to a radio station on satellite or, or regular radio, right? You, you don't have any control. They basically play the song, and I mean, you can change the station, but you're going to listen to that song and then the next one that they play for you. Well, in Pandora, um, it's different. Uh, you put in different singers, bands, or songs that you like, and they use an algorithm basically to parse the music that, that is you, that you like. Um, the algorithm algorithm asks, is this rock or soft rock or hard rock or is it antiphonal, is it classical, is it, you know, all of these, does it have lead guitar, does it have all of these, all of these questions that their algorithm parses for you, analyzes for you, and then it incorporates other songs that are like that and gives them to you to listen to. And by each song that Pandora plays, there's a thumbs up and a thumbs down, right? And so 
if you like it, you give it a thumbs up. If you don't like it, you give it a thumbs down. And if you don't like it, they cut it right out. And they give you another one. And each time you do the thumbs up or thumbs down, the algorithm takes that information into the computer and narrows down you, your selection, what you like and what you don't like, until you get radio just for you. Right? Isn't that our world? Isn't our world great? <laughs> just for me, everything, right? <laughs> The sad thing is, I think an awful lot of us approach the Bible the same way when we really think about it. I like this part, you know. I don't like that part. I like Acts. I don't like Ecclesiastes. <laughs> you know, I, I like this information. I, I, you know, I don't like that. I'll preach this. I don't want to really preach that. And we sort of parse out the scriptures until it's church for me and Christianity for me and the Bible for me, right? And the end result is no power because it isn't the Bible for me that matters. When we come across that way, people begin to understand it and they begin to see it and respond to us. Oh, that's your interpretation. That's what you like. But I like this. That's not our option. This is God's word. Now, certainly it all has to fit together, and sometimes we struggle with some of those things, but we don't start out by saying, I like this part, I don't like that part, I'll pick this, I won't take that. This is God's word. This is his message. This is what we're grounded on. And we have to see God's word, and see the world, excuse me, through the grid of God's word. We have to take the Bible, all of it, and proclaim that message. And we have to know the Bible, of course, right, in order to do that. You see, the interesting thing is that Peter, in his very first sermon, stands up and he immediately goes to a passage way back there in Joel to begin his sermon. But he had to know all of that information in order to be prepared to preach that message. How well do we know the scriptures becomes the next question. Because that's the basis for a powerful witness. As the saying goes, a well-known saying, a Bible that's falling apart probably belongs to someone who isn't. It's a great expression, right? Now, by the way, tonight Wilbur Carroll is teaching, starting the class on evangelism. I encourage all of you that can to come to that class as you train in God's word and train in the principles of explaining God's word to people, and the principles of evangelism. Great opportunity to hone your skills in this area. Come back at 6.30 tonight. Wilbur will be teaching that class. All right, let's move on then. Secondly, we must warn the world before it's too late. Bad stuff is coming. God's judgment is coming, and it's our job to warn those we love, to warn this world. Verses 17 to 20, he quotes from the book of Joel to make his point. 
And it shall be, verse 17, in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. It looks like a scene from a science fiction movie, says Werner Smolnik. Environmentalists and scientists are stumped over a phenomenon occurring in a pond in Hamburg, Germany. Without reason or warning, more than a thousand toads have puffed up and exploded. Their stomachs fill up like balloons and they burst. Studies have ruled out fungus from South America, water quality, bacteria, virus. It's absolutely strange, says Jane Kloper of the Institute for Hygiene and the Environment. This phenomenon really doesn't seem to have appeared anywhere before. Although no cause has been found... Biologists agree on one thing. All residents should stay away from the pond. You think? (laughs) It's a warning. Sounds like a good warning to me. Well, Peter uses the prophet Joel, and he ties it into the events that they're witnessing right now with that violent rushing wind, with the tongues of fire and the speaking in other languages that was going on in this public place and he says God's warning you listen up pay attention in verse 16 Peter says that 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 this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel and he uses a technical expression here so bear with me for just a minute because it, it, it's necessary to understand what he's trying to say here. The, the phrase, this is that, is a, is a Jewish way of talking that was very familiar. The rabbis used it all the time. Peter would certainly have understood this way of talking. It's the way they applied the scriptures to the lives of the people. This is that was their formula. We see it a lot in the writings of Qumran, for example, which come from the period of time that we're in the first century. And it, it, was, it was called Pesher language. Pesher was the name of the, of the way that they, they preached, the way that they taught. Pesher language draws a correspondence between then and now, between Joel 2 and Acts 2, in other words. Peter is not saying that the prophecy of Joel was completely fulfilled here in Acts chapter 2, because it wasn't. But he is rather saying that there was a connection or an application from Joel that warns the people to listen to what they are being told now. Pay attention. And Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 to say that God will do two major things before the great and splendid day of the Lord comes. God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh, and God will give cosmic signs to warn people that they're living in the last days. 
The great and splendid day of the Lord is coming. And Joel tells us that the day of the Lord is near. Joel chapter 2 verse 1. He, uh, he thought of it as coming very near in his day. Joel saw the day of the Lord on his horizon. It was long before Jesus even was born. And he warned the people about God's judgment. Peter draws the analogy to his day. And he warned the people about God's judgment in his day. In the last days, he says, God will pour out his spirit on all mankind. And and literally, the, the Greek text is, like a torrential downpour, God's spirit will come. Men and women will prophesy. Young and old will see visions. All classes of people will receive God's spirit, including slaves. In other words, God will pour out his spirit in the last days upon all people, regardless of gender, age, or class. God is not a respecter of persons. This is his moving of his spirit, warning people about what is about to happen. In the last days, God will give cosmic signs in the sky above and the earth below. Blood and fire and and steaming smoke will fill the earth. The sun will be darkened. The moon will be turned to blood, Joel tells us. All of these signs are warnings that the day of the Lord is near when you see these things. These signs will take place, he says, in the last days before the great and splendid day of the Lord. Now, what are we to make of this message that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2? Was Peter wrong? After all, Jesus did not come back right away and all these signs have not taken place even in his day. Are we in the last days? If so then the last days have lasted for 2,000 years. And Jesus has not come back yet. I think we need to understand something very important about prophecy, the nature of prophecy, all right? Peter is using Pesher language. I've already explained that term. Or what some theologians call generic language. He is drawing an analogy or a connection to his day But the prophecy was not really fulfilled in his day. It was still yet future to Peter. And in fact is still yet future to us. Joel spoke these words to his people in his day. And he thought the day of the Lord was coming near. Peter does the same in Acts. We see the day of the Lord coming soon in our day, 2,000 years later. Prophecy is given by God in what we could call Pesher language or generic language. God wrote prophecy in generic terms so that each generation could think, wow, this might be it. This might be the last days. We might be there. That was God's design. And we can see in history multiple reference points. In fact, Joel 2 is used in multiple reference points. And in fact, Joel himself was applying it to his day and a judgment that God was bringing upon the people in his day. We can see down through history multiple reference points for many prophecies. When I I used to teach uh, the Old Testament prophetic books at the Bible college level, I'd give them assignment and I'd lay out several passages. They could pick one. And there's a whole bunch of these in the Old Testament that in the New Testament are used in multiple ways and say which one is the fulfillment. 
And they always struggled with that assignment. (laughs) Because, in fact, it's very difficult to do that in some of these prophetic scriptures. Because there are indeed multiple reference points in history. But, I will say this. Ultimately, there is coming a fulfillment of each and every prophecy, specifically as God foretold. And this prophecy will be fulfilled just prior to the return of Christ in judgment. So Acts chapter 2, Peter is saying, is a a reference point, a parallel application of this prophecy. Some of the things that you will see later are being seen here. But the great and splendid day of the Lord is still future to us today. And so we are still warning people about that great and splendid day of the Lord. And before that day comes, God will fulfill this prophecy as he pours out his spirit upon mankind. And Acts 2 is but a foretaste of the final event in the last days before Jesus returns to this earth. Peter, of course, could not know all of that. (laughs) It's hard to know all of that future at any point in time. But we can see it in hindsight. All right, what is the day of the Lord then? What is the day of the Lord? Specifically, the expression, the day of the Lord, is used, a huge term, used all the way through the Old Testament, used all the way through the New Testament, and refers to multiple things events that took place in the Old Testament, for example. The day of the Lord specifically in the scriptures is any time where God intervenes in human history to judge. And so the Old Testament prophets referred it to God's judgment in their day, and we see it yet in the future too. It is any time where God intervenes in human history to judge mankind or to judge the nation or to judge people. That's the day of the Lord. When you look at the the whole picture, Peter could see the Lord's judgment coming in his day. We can see the Lord's judgment coming in our day. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3, one of the places where we see this expression, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, that event is connected directly to the return of Jesus Christ to this earth in judgment. For those of you who are wondering, this is not the rapture now, um, but the return of Christ to judge this world. That's the day of the Lord. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 goes on to say that we are not children of the night, but we are children of the day. So that the wrath of God is not to come upon us. We are not destined for that wrath. The day of the Lord is the wrath. We're not destined for that wrath. We're saved from that wrath because we call upon the name of the Lord. And that's the rapture. The rapture removes us prior to the beginning of the day of the Lord, I believe. We are saved from that wrath. We are removed. We call that event the rapture. All right. Jesus is coming back to judge this creation. And God will once again warn this world 
that his judgment is about to come through the fulfillment, the, the, the complete fulfillment of this passage, where there will certainly be God's spirit poured out upon his people. There will certainly be, or upon the, upon the nations, upon the people of this earth, there will certainly be the cosmic signs and the outpouring of his spirit. God also warns this world through the witness of his church. And that's what Peter is doing right here. Before the day of the Lord comes, before judgment comes. Peter is being used of God to warn people that the day of the Lord is coming. God will judge this world. Is anyone listening? Are we warning people? It will happen. We won't have to suffer it as believers, but it will come to this earth. You may have noticed the news clips this week about the FDA introducing uh, new warning labels for cigarette packages for the first time in many, many years. These labels include now images of rotting teeth or a man with a tracheotomy and all list a smoking prevention hotline number that people can call. Similar warning labels by law now have to take up 20% of the surface of any cigarette advertisement. The FDA expects the new warnings will lead to 213,000 people quitting smoking by the year 2013. The tobacco industry has spent $16 million lobbying against the labels, and a federal lawsuit has been filed by several companies. Warnings. People don't like warnings, right? even if they save lives. I mean, to me, if over 200,000 people quit smoking because of these labels, the warnings are a good thing because they save lives. They're well worth it. Well, God warns this world. He's warned this world in his word. He warns this world through his people. And prior to the return of Christ in judgment, he'll warn his world with cosmic signs. And incredible events. Book of Revelation, for example. God warns because judgment day is coming. But God also offers a way out, doesn't he? And that's the beautiful thing. There is a way to avoid the judgment that is coming upon this world. The sad thing to me is that people don't heed the cigarette warnings they sort of become jaded to all of that. Well, it's not going to apply to me, you know. They just sort of discount it all. And unfortunately, I think people become jaded to the warnings of God's word, too. And this is where people like Harold Camping, to me, are, are doing a, a, a terrible, terrible disservice to God's work in this world. Because people listen to all of that stuff about the end of time and the end of days and God's judgment and all of that stuff and, and the predictions that get made and then nothing happens, right? And it just all becomes a joke on late night television and people just discount it. And it's, it's doing a horrible, horrible disservice to our witness and our warning. People just discount those warnings now. Sad. 
But we're still called to warn, aren't we? Even if people don't like the warnings, even if they're jaded to it, even if they point to people like camping and others and make jokes about it, what's our job? Still to warn them. Because the reality is God will judge. The day of the Lord is coming when God will judge this world. Could be very soon. Could be right around the corner. Could be. Right? God will judge. And we must warn people before it's too late. Look at verse 21, the end of this little section in his sermon. And it shall be, Peter says, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Aren't you glad that's in there? (laughs) Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the purpose of his warnings. That's the purpose of his warnings before Christ returns, too. Remember, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved right up until the day of judgment. So call upon his name. There is hope for all who call upon the name of the Lord. And we offer that hope to people. And the Holy Spirit empowered Peter, made him bold here. This is a guy that three times (laughs) denied Christ, right? He was scared. And now he's boldly proclaiming Christ right in the temple complex before all of the people there. The Holy Spirit empowers our witness as we offer that hope. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you are here this morning and you have never personally called upon the name of the Lord, do so today. Trust him for your forgiveness for sins. And he'll save you. And you won't be. You'll be part of the day, not children of the night. You won't be subject or destined to that wrath, Paul tells us. We can be bold for Jesus then because the Spirit gives us that boldness. The uh, sound of the gavel opening the Republican National Convention on July 31, 2000, wasn't actually the sound of the gavel. When doing sound tests, the audio engineer for the convention discovered that the noise that the gavel made up there on the the podium was not very impressive for the whole auditorium, the whole hall there in Philadelphia, the huge hall. So they pre-recorded an ideal gavel sound that was played over the loudspeakers when the moderator hit the desk with the stand-in gavel. It was wired so that it served as a switch. So whenever the moderator hit the, the desk with the gavel, then this huge sound went out through this hall so that, it, so that the sound of the gavel would be really impressive. And since then, at Republican and Democratic conventions, when you watch them and you hear that gavel go bang, it's all engineered to sound that way. It's all amplified. Well, you witness for Jesus. I witness for Jesus. And Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will amplify that message. He will magnify that message. So it's not that we have to be impressive. It's not that we have to have all the answers. 
It's not that we have to be able to be great at our witnessing. It's that we have to witness. <laughs> we, got, we just got to do it. And the Holy Spirit then takes that and amplifies it and makes it powerful in the lives of people. And people are saved. So God empowers his church with his spirit to reach his world with his message. He'll empower you. He'll empower me. These guys weren't trained theologians. They were men and women like you and me. Just went out and started witnessing for the Lord. And God turned this world upside down. And he'll do it through you too. In the fall of 2005, Tina Blessett's nine-year-old son, Austin, nine years old, he had to have his tonsils out. Before the surgery, an anesthesiologist came in to start the IV. He's wearing this cool surgical cap covered in colorful frogs. And nine-year-old Austin loved that frog hat. So they began to talk. And when the doctor started to leave, Austin called out, Hey, wait! The doctor turned around, Yeah, buddy, what do you need? Do you go to church? Uh, No, the doctor said. I know I probably should, but I don't. Austin then asked, Well, are you saved? Kind of nervously, the doctor said, Nope. But after talking to you, maybe it's something I should consider. Pleased with his response, Austin answered, Well, you should, because Jesus is great. I'm sure he is, little guy, the doctor said. And, of course, you you can imagine what he's thinking as he kind of gets out of there. (laughs) Whoa, I'm out of here. Well... When Austin's surgery was finished, the anesthesiologist came to the waiting room to talk with uh, Mrs. Blessed. He told her the surgery went well. Then he said, Mrs. Blessed, I don't usually come down and talk to parents after a surgery, but I just had to tell you what your son did. She thought, oh boy, what did he do? <laughs> the doctor explained that he'd just put the mask on Austin when he signaled that he needed to say something. When the doctor removed the mask, Austin blurted out, wait a minute, we have to pray. The doctor told him to go ahead and pray, and Austin prayed. Dear Lord, please let all the doctors and nurses have a good day. And Jesus, please let the doctor with the frog hat get saved and start going to church. Amen. (laughs) The doctor told Mrs. Blessed that that had really touched his heart. I was so sure he would pray you know, for his own surgery and that he would be safe and everything would go well. He said, he didn't even mention his surgery. He prayed for me. Mrs. Blessed, I had to come down and let you know what a great little guy you have. A few minutes later, a nurse came to take her to post-op and the nurse had a big smile on her face as they walked to the elevator. There's something you should know, she said. Some of the other nurses and I have been witnessing too and praying for that doctor for a very long time. And after your son's surgery, he tracked a few of us down in the hospital to tell us about Austin's prayer. And he said, well, girls, you got me. If that little boy could pray for me when he was about to have surgery, then I think maybe I need his Jesus too. Nine years old. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to have some of that boldness? 
for Jesus? That's the Spirit of God at work in our lives. And God does amazing things when we just witness for Him. Father, pray that you will make us bold by your power. Help us to be living, walking testimonies of your word. Help us to warn people of your coming judgment. Help us to share with others that if they call upon the name of the Lord, you will save them. And we pray that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.